Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, Shazam's disappointing box office, John Wick Chapter 4 hits theaters, and director Chad Stahelski joins us for a chat. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 254 of Real Blend, a podcast that can't believe the Matt Damon Nike movie is entitled We Bought a Shoe. (laughs) My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend. And this week, we're going to discuss Shazam's disappointing box office. Uh, John Wick Chapter 4 is going to hit theaters and director. And as we found out over the course of this conversation, fan of the show, Chad Stahelski is going to be joining us for a chat uh, about all things John Wick. Uh, another interview that I was not a part of, but I am lucky enough to be joined each and every week by the guys I send out into the field <laughs> to do uh, field reporting. Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jake. How are you? I'm sorry. Are we your correspondents? Basically. Yeah, essentially. I feel like well, I'm the at the anchor desk. So you're, you're John you Stewart and we're John Oliver and uh, and, and, Steve and, and, and Colbert. Steve, Steve, yeah, Earl Colbert. Earl. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fine. Yeah, that's kind I mean, of how I, I, I mean, do I, the show. I ain't mad about it. <laughs> and it'll, it means that you guys do more traveling than I have to do. And I get to stay home. And ultimately end up making big, massive, you know, movies and millions of dollars and win all the awards. Exactly. Thank mm-hmm. you. As it should be. Uh, Kev McCarthy is the other guy over there from Washington, D.C. Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. to be specific. Hello, Kev. How are you? Sean, that we bought a shoe joke is just... I actually Perfect. was going to ask like, and text you. you and be like, hey, if you Thank don't you. use that on the junket, can I use that on the junket? <laughs> I'm not doing the junket as far as I know, so help yourself. Okay, well, if you end up getting the junket and want the joke back, let me know. I, do you know, I woke up... This is so stupid. I woke up at 5.30 in the morning and I couldn't fall back asleep. And then that joke popped into my head and I had to get onto my phone and tweet it right away. <laughs> That's how honestly, happy I was honestly, with that it joke. It was so good. I thought yeah. you stole it from someone else. And I'm, and, but now I'm emceeing that other people have used it, but I swear to Christ, I didn't. I got ah, just. Well, now I'm afraid to, now I'm afraid to use it at the junket because I don't want to be like the eighth say. person who's, who says it. Oh, you know that like some hacks are definitely going to hit him. With I got to go one, first. So. I got to go yeah. first. <laughs> dear, dear Amazon must go uh, first. And uh, let's say hello to Gabe Kovach, who's sitting in the producer's chair. Gabe, how are you doing, sir? We have your Jurassic Park shirt and uh, stylish thing jacket. Now, yes. It's, how are things in St. Louis? I'm, Pretty good? Uh, good. It's it's warming up finally. It's a little cold today. It's been a little cold, but, you know, we're getting through it. We're getting through it. Oh, I'm All sorry. Right. Has it been cold for you? I'm so sorry. 
that here in Chicago, it's a fucking tropical yeah, paradise. It, tell me, is, tell me more about how it, cold it's been for is you. Is it cold in your high-rise apartment right now, Jake? Get off me. No, it's not. It's like 85 <laughs> degrees, as Sean knows. I keep it Arrakis that, style around here. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, the spice. We're getting close. <laughs> the spice is flowing in apartment 1306. We're getting close to the spice, actually, arriving in theaters. There's some big movies coming up, by the way, guys, and most of them star Florence Pugh. Yeah, no uh, joke. As you're going to discover uh, for the next couple of months. So let's get into the show. we got a lot to get into. As I mentioned, if you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you are enjoying the visual aspect of the program, including um, Jake's Fox 32 sweater and uh, my UK hat representing the team, even though they are not going to Sweet 16. While you're here, make sure you give us a subscribe and also hit the like button. Apparently, we're learning that that helps out a lot. And comments down below are also really, really helpful. We love when the notification crew weighs in. Ask us questions down that way. Um, all of us interact with the people who are down in the comment section and we answer a bunch of different things about the show or about topics that maybe we bring up on the show you guys want to know more about. So go to youtube.com backslash real blend podcast to figure out how you guys can play along with the show and watch us on your giant televisions at home. Um, if you want more of this show for some odd reason, we have Real Blend Premium, which gives you an ad-free version of the program, uh, a new segment every Monday where we play some fun games and have some offbeat conversations, uh, and then a newsletter. Now, this is the newsletter week for me, so I'll be getting something to you. I'm not sure what it's going to be based on yet, but um, I have a couple of things brewing. A couple of news items that I threw by Gabe's way, but he just said we're too busy this week. We are pressed for time. So maybe I'll steal one of those and... Uh, Work them into an interesting newsletter. But like I said, we got too much stuff to get to, starting with Chad Stahelski. So, Kev, uh, since I was not part of this, do me a favor and set up getting to speak to uh, Chad once again on behalf of John Wick, Chapter Four. Yeah, I mean, I've always been so um, vocal about like the importance of why Chad is such a great director. We had him on for the for Chapter Three, uh, Parabellum. Uh, and he was outstanding. And if you if you go back and listen to that episode, it's it's crazy. They talk about the different color coordinations they were using for the dogs and where they would bite people. Um, but going into chapter four, I mean, I think this film, I, I think this is the best of the John Wicks. And we're going to review that later on as we get into the review section of the show. But the fact that a stunt coordinator, uh, stunt double or coordinator, however you want to refer to Chad, I would say stunt coordinator um, was, you know, Keanu Reeves, a stunt coordinator on the Matrix films. That's why the action in these movies is so incredibly well choreographed and beautiful and very immersive and very easy to watch. Um, and I think to talk to a filmmaker like this, we got a lot of time with him just to dive into really interesting filmmaking ideas. But everything that he does is narratively driven, right? This is not just like for shots to, to do look cool. Let's do a one let's make this look cool. Let's camp the angle this way. He does it because it's all narratively driven. Even even Keanu Reeves's reloads are narratively driven. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but so the interview itself, I'm very proud of what Jake and I were able to do with Chad. Uh, he gave us extra time uh, and this was just a really fun and really interesting filmmaking conversation. So anybody listening to this, we, we were blown away by how cool he was, and we hope you enjoy it as well as much as we did. Well, let's get right to it then. Chad Stahelski, returning to the Real Blend podcast to talk John Wick, Chapter 4. I wanted to go back to the first John Wick, obviously, and looking now at Chapter 4 and how the guns and the reloading aspects have maybe changed over the years and the technology behind that. And kind of maybe you can point out a scene in the first John Wick and then maybe here where, like, the technology is different and how he's reloading. Well, when you mean technology, you mean, like, the weaponry? Yeah, or how you mean, it's like, done. the movie magic of it all? Yeah. Um, 
Well, we kind of took the idea that um, a great guy, Steve Wiltz, who, who is an actual member of LA SWAT, helped train Keon on the first one, on the first film. And after that, um, we kind of went a different direction. We discovered Three Gun, which is the, the shooting competition that with Taryn Butler, it's pistol, rifle, shotgun, and how to reload and, and, and speed reload and speed change and target shoot and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess it started very early on where we thought, okay, what is, how these all start is Keanu and I sit in a room and we write down this big whiteboard, everything we love about action movies. And on this whiteboard, we write down everything we hate about action movies. And one of the gaps we saw is like, no one ever reloads. Mm. And no one, uh, no one ever checks the mags. No one ever does everything that literally anyone that's ever held a firearm before from you know a, a military background a law enforcement background or any of the other services okay you check you wonder how many bullets yeah. you have <laughs> my dad it, loves pointing out oh he, he would be out of bullets yeah, right yeah, now. yeah. yeah. It, you know and that's why you always see you can't do these little some people may not know but he's always pressure checking making sure there's some in the mag. Like, we try to stage for too just because it's a character moment it's like you know it'd be the equivalent of someone never cleaning their sword off or never sharpening their knife like you see it so we just wanted to put that realism back in. And then you take to the, the tactical side of things, when we go to like Taron Butler's range, it's a lot of, because competition is based on speed shooting, you have to hit the target, move to the next target, hit it, and if you run, you have to be replacing or reloading in motion. So we thought that, we watched it happen, and I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's going in the movie. That's like, how do we, you know, all John Wicks are kind of like, I'm a huge Tolkien fan, so like, how do we do a modern day fantasy? Well, you do Blade Runner, you do sci-fi fantasy, Right. And you do period piece fantasy, The Witcher and, you know, Lord of the Rings or Rings of Power or whatever. But like, how do you do a modern? Well, no one really does. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of how we came up with the idea for John Wick. Well, let's do a fantasy film that's about myth, mythology and the underworld and all the different gods. And we'll layer it like this. But OK, then. OK, well, Percy's had his sword and shield. And like, how do you what do you do? OK, John Wick has a nine millimeter. <laughs> so, like, how do we make that both, you know, anchor it in realism, but at the same time, make it fantastical? And that's how Gun Fu started. Close quarter, CQC, tactical um, reloads, tactical shooting, um, magazine checks, run out of bullets, all this stuff. And we kind of looked at like the Marcus Aurelius, the obstacles away. We try to look at something like, okay, whether it's stairs or cars, or whatever, how do we make the most difficult thing? And then everybody dips their head down and goes, <laughs> and then the fun part is solving it. So the reason you didn't see a lot of reloads in earlier films is because it, it's, it's awkward, right? It, 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 how do you... You know, and people use it as, you know, up until very recently, they used it as time to get a little dialogue in. You yeah. know, the revolver. Yeah. Like, okay, you guys, yeah. I'm going to cut. And we're like, okay, that's cool. We'll use that too. But, but character driven. But character driven. And within the action, like you don't see, like Keanu's doing jujitsu, sambo, um, judo as he's reloading. At, we, we, like we just made it part of the choreography. Not yeah. a moment, not a shot, just part of it. But again, you only do that. You can't just, it's practice. So Keanu's probably spent, I think we did the numbers one time. It, it, it's some ridiculous hours on the range, like tens of thousands of hours over the last nine years. So like, I mean, we all shoot for fun and recreationally for target shooting. Then I think of all the stunt guys or all the stunt people that go and the shooters, I think he's still so fast. Yeah. <laughs> he still beats us all. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I was watching his face a lot during the reloading. And, and you're right, there's, there's an internal quality of oh, the emotion. Oh, he does it without it's, even yeah. looking. It's nonchalant, yeah. but it's also incredibly immersive. And also you understand, you can almost feel what he's thinking as yeah. we're watching yeah. him reload. It's and wild. And that's with practice over. But you gotta remember too, Keanu's a lefty. We're both lefties. Me so too. we shoot lefty, but we shoot righty as well. And Keanu's the whole movie's doing it righty. Oh um, my God. So if you go back and watch, I dare you to go try because he's ambidextrous in the movie. Did and you guys have to the make the decision shots, that John Wick is right-handed? Yeah, we did. 
how do you get? How do you come to that? How do you go? Why, why is he right-handed? How, from uh, a character perspective, because we thought it'd be cool when we switched to the left hand. <laughs> 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 That's so if you watch the nunchuck fight, you'll see him. Mean, like again, we try not to fo- like you do the close-up of the switch. We try not to do that, but like in the middle of the fight, you'll see him. He'll switch hands. He'll do like. He's completely ambidextrous in the movie, which Hell is pretty cool. I just want to ask really quickly, you talked about the two whiteboards, what you love and what you hate. What was on the, what we hate about action movies whiteboard? Um, look, I have no problem with shaky. I have no problem with fast. I have no problem with VFX. Just like, I'll use it left and right in my second unit career. Actually, it's fine. It's again, and I have no problem with oneers. I just, when you have nothing else but, and we know they're not oneers, they're digital stitches. Sure. Very, like, you know, go back to old boy. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a oneer. Okay, no, that you, you have is, my respect because yeah. I, I don't know. Like they did that. Yeah. There's no tricks. There's no hidden wipes. There's no stitching. You got me. If it's one all of the best wonders ha- of all time. Yeah, Added I, children I, of I, men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, children of men is a great example. They did it for an emotional gag. Like they got you. Yeah. Like holy shit. So I'm just saying, like, um, if the scene doesn't have it already, using a gag or fancy editing is not going to give you it. If the scene was kind of lame, or the choreography was kind of lame, or your cast didn't train and you didn't get the right stunt guys, and the choreography was bullshit. Like fast editing and shaking your camera isn't helping. I don't like it when it's the band aid. Yeah. Like a lot of times, like when uh, Paul Greengrass originally did Born, that was to infuse something. I, I have no, like the way he did it, like they infuse something into the scene. People kind of took that, well, like we don't even have to work. Let's just zoom in on the phone and we'll, like there's nothing there. Like why are you just doing a snap suit? Like what are you doing? He did it and he had a reason to it and I really appreciate that. We all thought that was, wow, that's great. That's how to use camera. But nowadays, well, back in the day, and sometimes even today, if you don't have things or you're lacking in something, you didn't prep right, it's let's shake it around, let's fast cut. And a lot, unfortunately, a lot of editors and camera have been trained that way mm. to infuse action. The job, that's my job. That's any director. Like I, I, it's, it's funny. A lot of times directors will show up on set and they haven't seen the fight. They're, they're not part of it. They just go, well, let the second unit guys or let the action guys do it. Um, Spielberg doesn't do that. He shoots his own action. Nolan shoots his own action. You know, Guy Ritchie, Jack Chant, like some of the best directors out there shoot their own action. Tarantino. Tarantino. I'm like, we're, they're not stunt guys. They're not kung fu guys. Action's not that hard. You go watch show, it's not that hard. <laughs> we just prep better than most people. <laughs> like if you watch my shot, like the shots you guys are talking about, yeah, it's a dolly. <laughs> you make it sound easy, yeah, but it looks not. It, the prep is easy. The lead up is is incredibly difficult. Sure. Getting the cast, getting the money, getting the time, getting someone like Keanu that's going to commit mm-hmm. to what it takes to get that. Like no one ever thought a one with Fred Astaire or 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 mm-hmm. Gene Kelly. Who, they didn't look at. Oh my god, that's it. Oh my god, you're up. It was just watching a guy dance. Yeah. What no one talks about is the twenty years it took him to get that good, so he can do that shot and singing in the rain, and not cut. I think there's only three cuts in that whole sequence. All right, what we're doing isn't even that hard. You know, I know I have a lot of logistics with the cars and all that stuff, but like, you know, no one ever talks about Bob Foster, Gene Kelly, or Fred Astaire, or Danny Kaye, or Gwen Verdon, or anything. Like, but that's impressive. Yeah. What about so, Hitchcock's rope? That's what I mean. When so, you go behind okay. a black jacket to stitch right. back in the day. So, we're not doing anything that hasn't been done before. We just went back to that and went, oh, what made that work? Yeah. Oh, right. Talented people doing good things. Got it. It's amazing. It's pretty simple when you get down to it. So I appreciate the accolades and like, oh, my God, he's the action guy. But all we did was just go back to basics. There is a problem. How do we infuse something more into this? How do we bond the action to the character more? And it's not about stunts or not using stunt doubles or, or new camera tricks. It's about just why does everybody love YouTube? It's funny people falling on their heads <laughs> or it's talented people doing talented people yeah. like seeing people do stuff that's what makes it incredulous to us right it's like 
what do we enjoy? That's why we go to the ballet or the theater. We want to see it. Yeah. Right? If I stood here right now and threw a backflip for you guys, you'd be like, oh, fuck, he really threw a backflip. He's old <laughs> man. He did. Like, he, that's more impressive than if you see me on wires doing it against green screen. Sure. I agree. Right? You're so talking we to just, yeah. We love so the question is, will you do a backflip? Is my next, that's my next question. <laughs> Depends with the ratings. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I want, you were talking about problems and solutions. I want to talk about a problem you presented yourself in Chapter 3 and how it sort of had a ripple effect. And the problem is John Wick cutting off his ring finger. Because whenever I saw that years ago, my first thought was, so he's going to have to key out that finger for the, the, whole, the time. whole rest of the time. Yeah, we didn't think we were doing a four. So, okay, so if you I, interview anybody from Lionsgate, yep. <laughs> it was a huge debate. In fact, it was a massive debate on last week. You can't do that because when we make the next one, it's going to be, it's gonna be a VFX. And we're like, we're not making the next one. Don't wow. <laughs> okay, so we, we, it's very in the, in the opening of four, it's very noticeable yeah. that the, the finger is missing. And, from, and I remember thinking, okay, I need to pay attention to see if it's gone the rest of the And I kind of honestly, just, I got lost in the movie. Like, if I study every single shot, it's, it's, gone. Just, it's gone. Yeah, I think was it's there, over 600 VFX shots. Was there a moment where you just sort of thought, like, shit, that was a really bad choice? No, we kind of, we thought it was a great choice. We just kind of laughed. I'm not going to lie. No, it was kind of funny. In fact, at the end of the last movie, like, Matt Leonetti, who's the head of physical, brought that. It was a big argument between him and I. Or, let's not, a debate. Sure. It's like, so at the end of the movie, we gave... Matt and a few other VFX people, uh, these little statues of a hand that look like that. <laughs> I think to this day he still has it on his desk, but if he sees this, he's going to laugh because it was always a concern. But like, ah, it's cool. You know, it's, he can't have love. He can't put the finger on anymore. We're going to take away his ability to love somebody or get married. And we're like, ah, let's do it. It's symbolic. It's great. Yeah. And it's also 600 more VFX shots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one thing you said that really, that I've been a champion of on our show a lot is talking about making narrative decisions for shots. Like not just being, not just looking cool, not just doing a wonder for yeah. wonder's sake. You know, we mentioned Children of Men, that motorcycle sequence that Chivo and Al-Quran shot, that rig they had in the car where the mm -hmm. actors were ducking out of the way. It's just insane. But it was, but you're right though, there was a narrative choice there and it was such an immersive well, moment. Well, that's why we're talking about it right now. It's right. cool, don't get me wrong, super cool. Ingenuity, it's everything you want on a cinema, right? right? Cool, different, subversive. But what grounds it is, it, it, it had a, a purpose. Yeah, it's yeah. a choice. And you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. So that brings me to the a phenomenal wonder you have in your film, which is Overhead. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure the name of that gun he was using. I call it like a fire blaster. Uh, it's a Genesis 12 shotgun. Nice. And it's with Dragon's Breath. It's phosphorus coated, uh, uh, like a triple X buck kind of thing. It's little ball bearings coated in phosphorus. When it hits the air, it ignites. Oh. And for people listening to our show, that it's these scenes where Keanu's just shooting people and they're bursting into flames. <laughs> it almost kind of reminded me of Blade when they like disintegrate yeah, a, a little bit. bit. Um, but I want to ask about the choice there. So that that's obviously one of the most incredible shots in the film. Film. But from a narrative perspective, as a filmmaker, why do you go into the wonder there? And uh, and I couldn't tell if you had stitches in that. That looked there's two stitches. in That, that looked. I like, want to go on the record. It's not a complete wonder. There it, are two stitches. Yeah, but talk about the narrative decisions and kind of like why why you do go into it because you don't use slow mo a lot in the film either. And then you no, have, we brought it back. I think I have two or three shots in this yes. one a little bit in the club just because I thought it would be fun. Yeah, like part of maybe it's not. I wish I was as. You know, I could sit here and preach to you guys about the narrative, about my narrative genius and stuff. But like with John Wick's, we, we come at it from a slightly different attitude. Like the scenes that count, like, you know, the character scenes or the emotional scenes. We really try to focus on like church with him, with Keanu and Donnie. Love or like the, the loving husband with Ian. Like that we really try to figure out. The cool lines that you guys are saying, like those are things that come to us. In the, like I'm sure you know in the bit, like everybody's your best friend until you need them. Mm -hmm. And it's inconvenient. So like that, that's a direct statement to a few people <laughs> wanted to know I was thinking of them if you want to just tell them right I mean no, it's good <laughs> let them simmer in it it's, it's good um, but those are things we pull from life and I love 
you know, the still obviously we're big stoic fans. So you, you read that mythological fans and uh, Japanese Bushido kind of is all mixed in there. But I guess um, for the top shot, John Wick, sometimes you, you can push pretty hard, but then I got to let you off the hook. It can't just be <laughs> funny to say headshot, headshot, headshot. Like there's got to be a time to let you out, to let you know something about John Wick. So when we change or do some kind of insane camera movement, it's meant to bond you to John Wick somehow, right? A wonder's bonding you, Keanu. Keanu is John Wick. There's no separate. It's not just Keanu Reeves is John Wick. He moves and he's doing it. That's not John Wick doing it. That is Keanu Reeves doing that reload, doing that jujitsu, doing that. So you're buying it more, right? You, we know how wacky the plot and storylines are. Duels at Sacramento. <laughs> we know. Just like Tolkien knew. Dwarves and giants and trolls. and so, But at the end of it, it's bonding, right? It's friendship. It's fellowship. It's everything you want out of a great story. So sometimes we use that to bond, and sometimes I want to isolate John. I want to show you that it's all gone. It's all gone. Like he's not. And sometimes that top shot or a top shot lets you view this singular individual against, you know, unsurmountable odds, and you kind of go through. So I'm trying to pull you away from the character for a second. So mm -hmm. when by the time he does go out the window, you feel like it's alone. And also... Just as pacing-wise, I want you to think that's the last part of the movie. Like, it ain't going to get any better. Like, this is, he's outdone himself. Oh, my God, it's a top shot. He goes out the window. It's okay. Jeez, oh, exhausted. Let's get to the top of the steps. Yeah, I got one more for you. Oh, my God, that <laughs> And we'll do down. one more. So it was kind of a, a pacing creative thing that we wanted to do as well. But, uh, again, I believe that's why you see so many, like, Sergio or Kurosawa, super wide anamorphic shots. I want you to always know you're in the world of the gods. And Perseus, in this case, John Wick is this little, little mechanism. Even Ian, when he walks in, he's to the Louvre. Chad, like, that scene that's, when when Ian's walking yes, through the museum, yes. and like we're just—it's a, a wonder on the way to Skarsgård, yeah. and just the scale and scope yeah. of those yeah. freaking paintings. Yeah, like that was—I right? loved that. That's that, my favorite shot in the whole movie, actually. That, yeah, that one might have been a little directorial ego of going, you know, oh, fuck yeah. you, I shot in the Louvre. No, <laughs> it's the real. Louvre. I mean, if you're going to be not there. a green screen, yeah. it's the Louvre. The hell of a shot, you man. Know. But you know, one of the reasons I, I, I appreciate the the big moments is because they're—it's like a catch twenty-two. The big moments make the small moments better, and the small moments. But so when you talk. Talk about these big epic moments you're doing, and then you have a line like, "Will you take me home?" It's made better because of everything we just saw, and so that's why I appreciate the big things because it makes the small things better. Um, speaking of the small things, there's a, a small little detail about John Wick that I've always appreciated and loved and wanted to know more about, and it's how he wears his watch because he's always looking at the time, the and down, he yeah. puts the hand, he puts the face of the watch on the inside of his wrist. And I was just wondering if there are other small sort of small details and the conversations that go into something as simple as his watch would be worn that way. They, you know, again, the people that originally trained Keanu, I mean, you, every special force or special forces member or every elite unit, whatever you want to say, well, they're all different. They all have their preference because it does come down to personal preference. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time we had someone trained that was how to, we were doing a lot of sniping. We had a sniping scene in the original that we didn't really use. But, you know, that way, with Keanu's wrist, he could be able to look at the watch and the time oh, and not nice. turn his wrist over. Oh. So that came from a sniping or a, a, a sniper that was working with us at the time, had a lot of sniping experience. Uh, so John's always worn his watch like that. And it was also, it happened to be a Marine sniper that we're working with. So for two, so the, the tattoo on his back was a motto of like the United States Marines. So we were kind of dropping little hints that Keanu had had or John Wick had had a military background or at least went through the service. Mm -hmm. So we tried to drop these very subtle things. Just even how he stood, he always had a slightly bladed body. Mm -hmm. 
He always had his hand. He's very good at doing the jacket draw with his thumb. Yep. You'll see all these little tidbits that maybe if you were in a covert op or a special service and you go, oh, somebody, do somebody you get told you reactions that. From, from fans who have military background? Which is really cool. I think, you know, our whole milieu, our whole philosophy with choreography is always a lot of a little. Mm -hmm. It'd be very easy just to, he's a swordsman and all you see is sword fights through the whole movie. But with John Wick, we try to keep those little variances. Yes, he'll always have a, a firearm, but then there's a nunchuck, there's a spoon, there's a fucking pencil, there's a dog, there's a car. We just want to keep subverting expectations. So it's the same thing. We drop in little hints. So you just don't have, you know, you know the scene that we all hate. Two guys in a room going, you know, so John Wick was a Navy SEAL yeah, and he goes yeah, down like, yeah. so rather than show it, you write this scene in, so this will be, well, otherwise people will be confused. Like, no, oh, fuck you. I want you to be confused. Yep. I want you to figure it out. Yep. So over four films, not that we knew we were going to do four, you've kind of pieced it together. Okay, he was an orphan, came from this Russian thing, he got dropped off here, he goes over here, he was in the military. He did. So all that's part of it. So like, if you were a cinematographer, you'd recognize the anamorphic lenses. You'd see the color. You know that we're pushing the highlights and contrast and digital and immediate way harder than we should. Yep. You know, so, you know, wardrobe, you, every shirt or jacket that Bill Skarsgård wears has silver thread stitched into it. The white suit, the red suit. Mm. Why? Because I read this one article on the fashion, or I saw this one thing on the fashion channel that was about how to kick light. I was fascinated by this little article and show. So, so I was I like, what, what does that expression mean? Kick uh, light? Kick light. No, like, uh, you see Bill Skarsgård's wardrobe in it, right? Yeah. Like every time he turns, his, spart, his suit oh, sparkles. Oh, you're right. Okay. And that's because whatever color's in, he's got little silver threads yeah. stitched into his wardrobe. Oh. Keanu's suit is not actually flat or a material like yours. It's got these little dents in it, like Kevlar. And that's why I can have black on black on black because it'll always kick light. Yeah. So how do you put your lead actor in black and still see him when you all you do is shoot at night? Yeah. We came up with the material that kind of kicks light, reflects. Wow. So you can see all these little things. My point is that, um, yes, we put little things in. So if you are a, uh, you know, an elite or a special services kind of person or law enforcement military, you see these little things. Oh, okay, they did their research. If you're a cinematographer, oh, they did. If you see a wardrobe, oh, they did their research. If you're a car guy, okay, it's a 71 Barracuda, but we do a few little mods yeah. in there that if you're into cars, you'd kind of know. Mm. If you're into firearms, you'd look at that pit viper, or you'd look at the Glocks <laughs> and you'd go, Oh, that, that's like, we just want to drop all these. It's like a fan based film sure. for a lot of different kinds of fans. Yeah. So no matter who you are in the industry or out, we just want, you to know, we put our time in. Mm -hmm. So whether it was the prop, whether it was the locations, I just want other people in the industry to go, Oh fuck, they really tried on this one, yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's what we kind of like. If Hiroyuki and Keanu, when they hold the sword, they do it in a certain way that if you're a real Aedo or Kenjutsu guy, you go, oh, okay, somebody actually showed Keanu how to hold the thing right. It wasn't just movie people doing it. Because mm. they will you call know? you out on yes. the, yeah, the spectrum. Will. So we wanted to be at least like, or if you say, well, that's not the real thing, we said, well, I beg to differ. I'll have that. <laughs> I feel confident that we did everything good enough to have that debate with yeah. experts going, yeah, we did it our way, but this is where it came from. Wow. That's, yeah. awesome. that's what's fun about making films, you know. One of my all-time favorite scenes that I've dissected since I was in high school is Michael Mann's diner scene in, in Heat. It's uh, awesome. With Pacino and De Niro. Uh, and I always found it so fascinating that he never shows them in a two-shot. It's mm -hmm. always over the shoulder. And Michael Mann says that he shot a one or a three shot or two-shot of them, but he never cuts to it because he didn't want to lose 10% of the intensity as he was editing it. So then I thought a little bit about that during the Donnie and, and, and John Wick scene in the church. Um, just these two guys sitting down right before they're about to uh, battle it out. And they know that one of them may die. 
die. And it's like this respectful conversation, like what was Pacino says, brother, you're going down. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, was that an homage? Am I picking up on totally. that? As, like, I've done it it? I, one of my favorite scenes, too. I've done it twice. In the second movie, I did it with John Wick and, and Common. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Madison. Totally. Yeah. yeah, you're right about that. And then on this one, yeah, like, there's two there's two two shots in it, right? When they sit down in the front, yeah. right? When they sit down in the back. Yeah. And that's just meant to go. Like, it's supposed to be two brothers, opposition, two brothers. But in terms of like that heat scene, like, do you, uh, like I have to oh, nerd out with you. The oh, first, yeah. what was the first? Do you remember the first time you saw that and kind of what that oh, scene it gave me chills? Yeah, yeah, and like so, like to to carry on that, like and give it an homage, like in these films, and like for film fans who know that scene to pick up on that, but also not be. I think that yeah. that scene you kind of like our original working title of the movie was Hagakuri. You can go down that little rabbit hole of what that really means. Hmm. Um, Japanese code of code of ethics or behavior for samurai. It's it's a little controversial, but. Um, it comes down the overall meaning can, it's kind of like that scene what, what I mean is uh, you have two people opposing sides um, you guys will probably relate to any like any I work in the film industry I've had partners that weren't which is hard you come home it's hard to explain your day you know if you have two soldiers that go through an extreme circumstance together and they come home from war say it's very hard to relate to someone that hasn't served in that kind of situation. So even though you have like a cop and a criminal, like in heat, two different sides, but in the same life, who, who better to relate to? Mm. Like they understand each other better than their better halves mm. or their, even their peers will ever know. Like that is as close as you can get. And we kind of love that theme in John Wick. That's been our theme for quite some time. We just don't really go out and say it. But in number four, it's, we hang our whole hat on that one. It's about all these people, like how, who can understand you better than another assassin, another person putting the same thing? All our characters are putting these dilemmas that are literally unsolvable. It's like life. There's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. It just, there's no good choices. You're fucked. So what do you do? And that defines you. Like, you know, your skill set doesn't define you. Your choices define you, who your character is. And that's what our characters do. Their choices define them. Who can understand you better than someone else? And that church scene is about... You know, oh. even though we're at odds, we have to kill each other. There's no person I'd rather spend the last few minutes with because you truly wow. understand me. Wow. And that's what amazing. that's why we gave them both daughters. I wanted Hiroyuki and Donnie to be the same side yeah. or different sides of the same coin. And that's what makes them go, OK, what are my choices? They're both right. But what do you do? Not that it's even Damn. the same thing remotely to the same thing. But we often talk about like this, the whole junket world, like going home at the end of like. You can't complain yeah, it, to your it, partner. Got, man, I got three and a half minutes instead of four. Right. But like, you would understand <laughs> the, the, the exactly. junket complaints, I think. And we can be total strangers and not know anything else about each other. But, but there's like one of us in all these rooms yeah. here on this thing that can't go sit at a bar and we could all strike up a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. commonality, right? I love that. But it's even more. No one Commonality is great when you like the same football team. But when you feel you're being understood by somebody and you can feel you can let down your guard for that little bit to kind of be like, ah, somebody gets me. It's one of the best feelings ever. Yeah. I love that. Uh, you brought up something I want to I circle back to about different fans of these series loving the film for different reasons. And I want to bring up one very specific group of fans that I think is very cool and appreciate. And it's um, animal lovers. Because I'm, I'm a big, that's my dog. I'm a big fan. We're both dog people. I, I do a lot of work with animal shelters in Chicago. Uh, and the one thing I found amongst all animal lovers is they all love this movie because it boils down to you kill the guy's fucking dog, you deserve to die. So I know you probably get all kind of feedback from, from different fans of action genres and everything, but can you talk about the feedback you get specifically from like the animal-loving communities? Yeah, no. Do you hear from them a lot? Yeah, no, a ton. 
I mean, we just did the Kelly Clarkson show yesterday and it was all about National Puppy Day and, no. <laughs> and she was fantastic and she had these adorable puppies and stuff. Um, look, it come, when we originally got the script for John Wick, Derek Colsett had already had, it was an old German shepherd and the character was much older and stuff. We loved that. I, my mom was a, a breeder for Irish Wolfhounds, so I grew up with dogs since oh, I, wow. I can't even remember. Um, then I came to California, didn't have a dog. Now I have a fucking, I have a pack. <laughs> um, but it's interesting with animals. And you, unless you're a, a pet owner or somebody that really loves animals, you don't really get that. If you want to bring out who you really are, mm-hmm. you get a dog. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if you want to see how responsible you really are, if you want to see a different side of yourself, get a dog. Mm-hmm. Your resp- cats are great, but they're a little self-sufficient. I have two cats as well because I love cats. But dogs, they depend on you, but at the same time, you rely on them too. It becomes very codependent. But if you want to bring out character, watch somebody with an animal. Mm. Like that's what brings it out. So, okay, so now I have this movie where I got to kill like 80 people and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all the tough guy action stuff. And you remember the time we came up, you know, during the Bournes and the Takens and all that stuff. Macho, you know, all that. So how do you, and okay, if I challenge everybody out there, okay, so you have an assassin movie or you have an ex-Navy SEAL movie or you have a Green Beret movie or you have an ex-cop movie and you need to show that soft side because the studio wants you to show the human side. You can't just kill, 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 kill. So you have the love scene. You have the daughter, right? You have the, oh, poor me, I got to rescue the, okay, what's another way to do it? We've seen all those. Just give the guy a dog. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So how do you make the world's greatest assassin approachable? Vulnerable. Yeah, like I have seen some pretty, and I have some pretty, um, I've met a lot of people and I've, you know, through through the work world, and we, we know a lot of former soldiers and all that stuff. Um, haven't met one yet that doesn't love a dog or get soft with his kids or something like that. So it's in there. It's always in there, you know, no matter how tough or in, incredible these people are. So we just thought that was an amazing way to break in. We didn't look at it as like the gag, kill the puppy, make him off. It's just like, that's how we get you know, empathy, right? So Keanu with that puppy, you're just like, oh. And I think to your question, everybody can relate to that. Mm-hmm. You know, they come home, like I go every day, like I get the shittiest day, I come home yeah. to my dogs and like tails wagging. You're like, oh. Because you are 100% of their world. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know like, how oh. your day went. They exactly. don't know anything about that. Don't know, don't care. And yeah, like, they don't give it, yeah. So we kind of use that in the movies and I, I just think it, one, I, I enjoy that. I want to see that character. Like that John Wayne movie, you know, Big Jake. Yeah. He's got the, I mean, yep. come on, I love the movie. Yeah. And then, also, you have an animal on set, it changes the crew. Mm. Like, everybody take it comes, like, it's just, there's a magic moment when we have the dogs on set. Like, in the third one with Halle Berry and her two dogs, mm-hmm. like, Halle was trained to be that trainer. She'd walk on set and go, <whistles> they'd come, and the whole crew's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it just gives you that great vibe, you know? I want to talk to you about reflections, um, because you're dealing with a lot of glass, you're dealing with a lot of glasses, you're dealing with... Um, and Some you know, would call it a fetish. Yeah. I, well, no, I love it. I, I remember seeing something, I don't know if this is true, in, like in the first Matrix, if you look at the door handle, yeah, you, can, door handle. you can actually see the camera. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because you go back and look at those things. I mean, it doesn't hurt the film at all, but, like, it's funny to think about it now. But you're dealing with things that could easily be reflected, oh, very similar to that. Refl- I, just, I, I just locked the DCP less than two weeks ago. And we were going for the final QC check in the big theater. And right when Rina Samayama's killing the guy, we look at a post, there's a Steadicam shadow. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, how the fuck? Did we, we've been working on this thing for an hour, for a year and a half. How do we miss that? You always do. Yeah. And like when you do with glass and water, we're like, I'm, I, I have a reflection fetish, obviously. No, we, no, we I just I'm curious how you do it. Yeah. like that. And it's been incredibly diligent. Incredible. Is it angles? Is it erasing? Like it's it's a it's every it's every trick you know how to do. It's angles. It's putting a flag over it. It's putting a layer. It's doing VFX. It's cleanup. It's just being clever with angle and how you tilt 
the mirrors, like you'll see in the subway station, there's tons of mirrors that we're just tilting and moving at different sides. And then in number two, all the, the, the mirror room that we built, they're all on swivels. We knew when we were going in. So every mirror in the entire place can tilt up to 10 degrees. Oh my So that's God. how we hid the cameraman most of the time. Yeah, a little wow. trick. It's yeah. insane. Uh, what I'm about to say is meant to be in the most fun way possible, but our the producer of our podcast, his name is Gabe, uh, he might be the only person not looking forward to chapter four because uh, when three came out, he was given the assignment by his website to make a video of John Wick kill count and had to go through and edit and count every there's single, and there's a lot. The number he, and also, also not just a lot in terms of picking the kill, but also determining if John walks away and the guy's moving, is he going to die? Right. Is he is he tough left job. to die? Yeah. Tough job. So it's a tough job. I think he came up with 285 with <laughs> the number that he, he He's probably away. in the zone, yeah. And so he is looking at this nearly three-hour runtime of John Wick 4 and just going, son of a bitch. <laughs> he, 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 he screwed. Yeah. Any, any advice, any any tips you want to give Gabe as he as he <laughs> launches into... Frame by frame, baby. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the big hurdles he has over is, like I mentioned, when John Wick walks away and maybe the guy's still moving, is it meant to... In- indicate that John left him alive, or he's just the guy's going to slowly die. You see, out. John do a lot of cleanup rounds. He does. Yes, he does. Yeah. And you know, specifically so in this movie, a lot of cleanup. Go with that. Okay, yeah, fair enough. That. Fair enough. So I know we're going to be getting the wrap here, but uh, I, because we're a film podcast, I can't not bring this up. I mean, sure. like I've talked a lot about the work you do over the years on our show because of the way you design action, mm-hmm. because it, to me, it, it treats the audience like like you respect the audience. You respect uh, like you want to give us a ride. Mm-hmm. You want to give us something that feels immersive and emotional. Um, but going back to with The Matrix and obviously your work that you were doing with Keanu in that film, I know you've talked a lot about the story of blowing your knee out, um, mm-hmm. like like in this, the famous sequence in the subway when you lift the guy up and come yeah. back down. Um, I was wondering if you could just share another action story or, or a sequence from that film that like, th- like did something trigger in your mind? Like one day I want to direct, like, like I feel like I could direct Keanu one day and do these things. It was because the knee blast yeah. story I've heard, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. Those are just things. stunts and stuff happen sometimes. And, yeah. You know, pilot error, that kind of thing. Um, God, as far as like maybe the Genesis of anything, I mean, I, I can't tell you. And like, if you guys get a chance to talk to Keanu, you can always bring up the matrix. It was so much more than a movie. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to meet the Wachowskis. No, I wish. Um, you were a great cameo in the fourth one, too, by the way. I was like, yes. Yeah. That was what you call payback. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the moment calling in a, yeah. I, I, I mean, I owe her my career. So if she calls, you you go. Yeah, that's great. Um, you'd be surprised. For, it wasn't just me. Like, literally every person in that movie was a crew member from the originals. Oh, it's sad. Like, that's all awesome. the video game guys. There's all the VFX. So there's cool. John Gaeta and Ding Glass. Oh, like, they're so all cool. in the movie. The first AD, James Batiste. Was Bill Pope in there? Bill, everybody. Like, you got to go oh, in and check. There's a few Bill. missing, but yeah. most all people. That's so um, I guess it was the experience. Like, I, there's so many Wachowski-isms, I could tell you. Like, if you can't see the DNA of them in us, it, and it wasn't just a look or a composition or color. It was the way to approach it. Um, like my father was very, he's very logistically and he's very clever and he's very smart and he came up with construction and plumbing and all this stuff. So that's how I was brought up on construction sites. Mm. But, you know, he brought it up and the Wachowski actually saw it. Like how you do anything is how you do everything. Yes. Like period. Done. Tie your shoes right. The day goes better. Don't walk on the ladder. You don't get hit in the head. Like it was drilled into us. Everything matters. Treat this person like this, but like it was drilled into us. And if you watch the Wachowskis, they embody that. There was no detail that went in front of that camera that was too small. Like everything mattered. And you know what the most important shot was? The one they were on, period. Mm. And that was everything. You're like, ah, come on, guys, just an insert. No, it's not. I remember walking up one day, we were on the second Matrix, like we just got back. Like no one thought, you know, knew the Matrix. Like, you know, boom, 
exploded, right? And then we're back like a year and a half later, we're in Australia, we're back on Matrix 2. We're like, we couldn't believe the good luck we had. Like, wow, we're all psyched. And I just walked on set early one day and there were the Wachowski sitting in front of this monitor watching the fashion channel. You know, it was a runway thing. I'm like, no, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> they're they're, they're kicking light in this they're, video. What's going on here? They're like, what, what are you watching the fashion channel for? And they just... And I watched, they were just, and, like, and without even acknowledging, I was like, and just watch the way the light hits and watch the way it accentuates your curves. And they went into every detail why the dress this model was wearing it was beautiful and how it accentuated her moves and went right in character. It hit me like a sledgehammer. I'm like, holy shit. Like, they, that's why the outfit in Neo looks so amazing. That's why Carrie Ann's thing is that dark green and not black. That, they just got it. And those details stuck with me forever. So, like, first chance to direct is like, everything matters. Don't, dismiss do everything fans will see it the crew will see it like that's mm. the trick you know the first shot you do that day has to be your best shot why because it lets people know you're fucking serious it lets the crew know that nothing's too small i'm gonna do a good job the 15 hours you're gonna spend with me is gonna be worth it we're gonna do it right you know and that's that's what i learned from them so yeah. like that you can't you can't ever repay that's cool you know? and you look at the costumes in your film yeah, yeah. Oh and it's God. all yeah. it's literally all from them Cool. Uh, well, we cannot thank you enough no, for, for my pleasure, just taking guys, time and giving us pleasure. extra time. And you are like the absolute perfect guest. And we love having you on the show. Yeah, and and uh, we know we're kicking your day off right. And so, you know, hopefully perfect. how you uh, do anything, so yeah. you do everything. So hopefully the rest yeah, of the day man. goes as well as this one. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate thank it. You so thank, much. You. Thank, thank you. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you so much to our friends at Lionsgate and, of course, to Chad Stahelski and his folks for giving us time on the podcast. Um, there's a segment that or a little uh, anecdote that didn't make it into the recording. Uh, Jake, apparently we heard that Chad likes to listen to the show. 
Yeah, well, it ended up, this is information coming from from uh, from Kevin, but I noticed that there are a couple of moments in, in the interview where he would say things, which I take as the, the ultimate compliment. And Kevin, you know, and, and Sean, you've, you've been on the receiving end of this as well. Whenever he would say things and they sort of pause and be like, well, you guys know what I'm talking about. Or like, well, this sh- I don't have to tell this show. Or so, just those little those little factors that it really felt like. And I kind of took it as like, well, we've interviewed him before and he knows our style and we were they really they we were first up for him today. And but then it, Kevin, it ended up like that. That statement comes from the fact that like, no, it, it's because he listens to the show. Yeah. And, and so after the interview was done, I ran into somebody who worked with him who basically told me that she recognized us during the interview because Chad has watched our show in his in his <laughs> office. Like she's like walked by apparently and seen our faces on his screen um again i don't know how many times that happened but like the idea that this filmmaker who's you know listen i will get into the review section later but this is one of the best action movies i've ever seen in my life uh and just the idea that that guy who's who was behind the the camera on this action listens to our show is really cool so chad if you're listening to this thank you if it happened once and it was by accident, like he just happened to click on us <laughs> and then we jumped off immediately, I'm counting it. I'm counting it, it as at least counts. one view. He yes. thought he was watching Quentin Tarantino's podcast. He's like, oh, yeah, he's yeah. just guesting on that. I didn't. Uh, I thought that <laughs> this was- isn't video archives. What the hell yeah. is this? Yeah. Is this real talk? Is this the real talk <laughs> show I've been hearing so much about? Oh, who are these schmoes? Um, so uh, as Kevin keeps saying, we will talk about John Wick Chapter 4, a uh, full review later on in the show. But before we get to that point, I wanted to discuss... Um, box office for Shazam Fury of the Gods and some of the impact that I think that that's going to have on the DC universe moving forward uh, for people who did not pay attention to it the film opened to $30 million domestic $34 million international for a $64 million worldwide opening um, it was below expectations which were incredibly soft $35 million were the expectations it hit $30 um, it is down 40 some odd percent from the opening of the first Shazam, which is definitely not a direction you want to go with a sequel. Um, and with the the one two punch of Black Adam not doing incredibly well at the box office and then Shazam Shazam doing well with audience scores, but not with critics. I think it has an 87 percent fresh in the audience score. Um, and then the critics were about 50 percent on it. Um, I, I align closer to the audience. I think the movie was was very fun and I can't see why people wouldn't want to go to it and just have a good time. Um, but two things. Um, one, how, Jake, how do you feel about the opening numbers? And two, what do you think that means for Blue Beetle and Aquaman and these other films that are in limbo waiting for James Gunn to reboot everything? Well, I think these results coupled with what happened with Ant-Man. Obviously, Ant-Man had a big uh, opening weekend. Here's the, here's the thing. I think I feel like with Ant-Man, Ant-Man had a big opening weekend because people were convinced, I got to see this because it's a part of a bigger thing and it's introducing Kang and that whole deal. But then quality-wise caused a massive drop-off so that even though Ant-Man 3 uh, had the biggest opening, it's going to have probably the smallest worldwide total um, of the series. And mm-hmm. I think that and Shazam indicate two different things. One... Uh, I think audiences realize that Shazam 2 uh, is going to be so cut off from the rest of DC moving forward. Uh, I think Gunn kind of, I mean, look, I, I, I get why the Gunn announcement was made, and I, 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 it gave me a lot of hope for the future of DC. That does sort of cut the legs out from under movies like Shazam and Aquaman moving forward. It basically tells the audience that these movies don't matter. Uh, right. you, can, you can try all day on a press tour to say, yeah, well, we don't really know. We don't know what's going to happen. But like, it didn't help that like the post-credit scenes for these movies 
I feel like hinted at a thing that's not going to happen. And then the reports um, about Black Adam and The Rock that came out earlier today that may or may not be true. I don't want to get, I don't, I don't know if we want to touch on that. But also, I think another thing that it indicates is that the, the days of a just fine superhero movie making a half a billion dollars at the box office are done. Mm-hmm. I think uh, audiences are going to need quality. I, I think a movie coming out and getting so-so reviews for, you know, uh, are, it, it, is, it does matter. I, I don't think that there is such a thing as a critic proof um, uh, superhero movie anymore. And it really makes me wonder. We've been talking about this. At, I mean, the whole concept of superhero fatigue ad nauseum, and, and it, it seems to disappear every time a massive superhero movie comes out and does well. And I think we're on the verge of that with Guardians and The Flash later this summer. Yeah, both but of those two are going to skew or they're gonna do, positive. They're going to do huge. They're going to huge numbers. And so people are going to yeah. go, what superhero fatigue? But, you know, the, 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 these things are not a linear trajectory. There's, it's always going to be up, down, up, down, up, down. But I do think that the overall consensus is moving in the direction of of what might someone might call a fatigue. And it really kind of reminds me of that peak of the Westerns in the 50s and the 60s and how they mm-hmm. kind of just started fizzling toward the end of the 60s into the 70s. And I wonder if we're at sort of the beginning of, of that era, so much so that in like 20, 30 years, we're going to be able to look back and zoom, because you really got to zoom back when you see these sort of trends. They don't happen in, in, a, in an instant sort of moment. And it just mm-hmm. sort of makes me wonder if we're if we zoom out on, on what's happening with the superhero genre, if we're going to if we're just sort of in the middle of that decline right now, even though, yes, there are always going to be exceptions to the rules, but more. But that we're, we're seeing far more um, uh, swings and misses than swings and hits these days. Yeah. And I think you're going to see a couple of movies like the Marvels. And I hate to keep singling out the Marvels that if it doesn't do well, you know, that they're going to be teeing up very quickly for. And then blue like DC has Blue Beetle, mm-hmm. which nobody knows who Blue Beetle is. Right. They just don't know. And so even if the movie is good, you know, like like Shazam was good. It wasn't great. It was good. You sure. know, and if it's just that you're going to go right back to right. nobody's interested in these movies. And now, Kev, this is a, mo- a month that has a ton of franchises and big sequels. Do you think people just chose to sit this one out in favor of maybe Creed three or John Wick four? Because money's tight and you can't go see everything that's coming. Well, I mean, the movies you just mentioned are, you know, continuations of, of, other, of, 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 uh, successful properties already. So like, why wouldn't, if the first Shazam did well, why wouldn't the second one do well? And then mm-hmm. why would Creed three open to a hundred million, the biggest opening in the franchise? I'm assuming John wick chapter four will probably have the biggest opening of the franchise. I have no, no exact numbers on that. The yet, length but might hurt it. That's the only thing. Is that how long? It I don't, is? I don't think it's going to, I mean, avatar had a huge length and that movie yeah. crushed the top four highest grossing movies of all time are three hours. Yeah. Are they really? Wow. And I and I think John Wick is is so built in already to its audience that they're are they're going. And and also the reviews on this one and then what we're gonna give what we're gonna talk about it in a little bit. Um Shazam two just wasn't that good. Um, mm-hmm. One, two, it felt more like a business movie than it did a story film. And, and, I, and I think what made the film great were the family moments, right? All everything to deal with to deal with Asher Angel and and and, and the child and, and the foster care system and him aging out. That stuff was way more interesting than any of that CGI action. Again, I have nothing against CGI, but there are just times where it gets it gets a little much in a film like that. It just like, I just seeing a city get destroyed again and again, Mm -hmm. it just kind of feels monotonous. Um, I think from a box office standpoint, 
you know, you start to wonder, you know, I've seen comments online that people don't necessarily love Zachary Levi in the in the role. I thought he was great in the first one. I didn't particularly love him in this one. Um, the shtick the shtick got a little old. I thought I thought Asher was more interesting as the as the younger character than I thought Shazam was mm-hmm. as the older version. Um also, going going back to what you were saying about the James Gunn announcement, it, it, it made this film feel like it didn't mean anything in the D, in, in in the DC films, and I think there is something that like, to be said about Jake's point about Ant Man and Phase Five and kind of what that what that initiated, and the, we're going to see how big Kang's going to be, and that was an interesting thing. But I just think Shazam too. I mean, I don't know necessarily superhero fatigue is the right word but i mean we are inundated so much there's just so much um and to be honest with you i mean like i i i'm just really kind of clinging on to more original content that being said with john wick chapter four i'm over the moon about that movie it's great so it doesn't really make sense as to why like one thing would work and the other thing wouldn't um i mean clearly with the reviews that are already out i mean john wick chapter four is getting better reviews it has has a better word of mouth it seems like it's going to be um, that move. That franchise is just really going strong. I mean, I read something the other day that the first John Wick was like two months out from release and didn't have distribution or something like that. I was trying a lot to of people this. thought it was going to go straight to DVD. A yeah. lot of people are sort of making fun of it as being, oh, this is this Crazy. is Keanu Reeves doing Taken. Crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and I rewatched the first John Wick last night and the second one the other day. And I, it, 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 the world building in these films is outstanding. Um, and I think with the fourth one where people were going to get to see is interesting. But going back to Shazam's box office, I, I wasn't surprised at all by those numbers. It it, it, it seemed like um, it just seemed like it was inevitable. I, mean, I, I don't want to misquote David F. Sandberg, but didn't he come out and say something along the lines of I saw this coming anyways or something? I don't want to pair. I don't want to pair. Uh, he said him. in a series of very candid tweets, which I really admire right. that he did. He said, um, I just uh, got uh, my lowest rated um, Rotten Tomatoes uh, score and and my highest audience score of all time. So he goes, that just goes to show you where superhero movies are at right about now. Then he said he's very excited to get back to horror. He's mentioned this a number of times and he's not going to direct comic book movies anymore. Then he continued to go on and say the discourse that surrounds these films has become very complicated. Um, and especially for people who are involved in the pictures. And he singled out not just himself, but Leslie Grace and the amount of stuff that she received for Batgirl and how, you know, not my Batgirl and haha, your movie got canceled, like how awful people can be online. Um, and then websites, not Cinema Blend, thank you very much, uh, took that and used it for headlines that said Shazam director blames fans for films failure. Yeah. And then he comes out again I'm and he so goes tired of the he, Internet. Yeah. He goes, this is exactly my point. You know, he goes, what I said gets skewered and he goes, and you can't fight it. It's a it's a tidal wave you know, that you're trying to push back against. Lose, lose. Yeah, it's really it's really sad to see that because, you know, I think that's something we talk about a lot on the show of like, well, one, I mean, let's underline that with with our community. And if you're new here or Mm -hmm. or you haven't heard us say this or know the kind of community that we want to build. And if it's and it's probably evident in the way that we conduct our interviews versus, you know, uh, how we might feel about a certain film. You cannot like a movie, but that doesn't mean you can't respect and kind of cherish right. the work that goes into it. And that's something we always try to celebrate. And I think that's, and we that's get kind that of a smart listeners that, that, we, exactly. that they like. They like that. We're not like we, we can be critical, but we don't mm-hmm. have to hate on the whole thing. There's it's always like, something. Yeah. 
interesting and useful. No one's out there, you know, making a, a bad movie. movie got we always talk made. About. That's that's a miracle. Yeah. Like if yes. your if your movie got made, and honestly, I really to jump into that, I I get frustrated. And again, it, it doesn't happen too often, but every once in a while, and I'm and, and Kevin and Sean, I'm sure you guys get this too. I'll get a comment along the lines of like like you like you were really nice to that person you interviewed and like like really enthusiastic but mm. i know you hated that movie so like well like you're being insincere no it's not being insincere like that just because I, I i've had some of some of my favorite interview ever interviews ever for movies i've hated right like mm. like but and, and, and just because someone made a movie i didn't like doesn't mean i'm not going to respect them doesn't mean i'm not going to be kind doesn't mean i'm not going to be enthusiastic and it doesn't mean i'm not going to ask questions that i genuinely am curious to know the answer for like that mm. like someone liking a movie and 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 talking about it and and, and, and bringing information to people they're completely different things right mm-hmm. and right. The, the quote that always comes to mind and i don't i don't know if there's someone to attribute this to or if it's just sort of a an adage but it's that it's it's impossible to get a movie made and it's even harder to make a good one and it's yeah. like you got to remember yeah. that yeah especially in our position where you have to interact with people who are making them right be respectful to understand the have a bit of an understanding about how these things are made well, and and all four of us really are that's why and that's why we started this show it's like like at the end of the day, we are four people who, yes, we are critical and we're and that's what we're doing here in terms of like breaking things down. But we're also trying to celebrate. Right. And like and, and bring a light to even if a film isn't great, like we I didn't love Shazam Fury of the Gods, but I still wanted to talk to David F. Sandberg about sure. the filmmaking process. And, and there's still interesting choices that he made and great shots and things that I was fascinated by. And like I, I, I feel like we all try to find the good and. But it doesn't mean we can't be critical. We'll tell you if a movie's not good. We'll, we're always honest and ethical on this show. Um, but I just feel like it is. Uh, people on the internet want to tear people down in the worst way possible. And David, uh, again, I don't want to misquote him, but the idea of him having to back away from superhero movies because he can't because he because the because the discourse um, and go back to horror, which you know, again, uh, these tweets that he put out, I highly recommend reading them. Sean's right; they're really really candid and really interesting. Um, but it just it's sad to see somebody's. Um, excitement like is extinguished like that because right. of the discourse online or something he says gets misconstrued or or, or taken out of context. It really, it's well, really, I'll give you, it I'll give you one, be this way. I'll give you one quick example. Like he and uh, James Gunn were getting uh, flack on social media because um, Gunn's wife showed up in the post credit scene right. um, playing her peacemaker character. And someone said to James Gunn, like, stop casting your wife and everything. Right. But like, but she's really good in the role. <laughs> but, but it's not even that. Sandberg told the story to The Hollywood Reporter where he said that those people who were recruit, recruiting Shazam in that in that scene were supposed to be members of the Justice Society from Black Adam. But due to scheduling two days before he was ready to roll camera, those actors weren't available. And so Peter Safran just called and pulled favors because he produces Peacemaker also. And it's like, Hey, can I get uh, Jennifer Holland and um, Steve, a G Steven, a G who plays um, economist. I, I think it's Steve. AG. Can those two guys come down and just film this shot, this scene really fast. So they came down and do a favor and then, you know, gun and, um, and David Sandberg get shit for it online. And it's just like, it's misinformed, completely ill-informed, not informed opinions that get thrown at these filmmakers and again, if you try to answer every false question, it's just it's it's exhausting. You can't you can't keep up with it. So, yeah, so anyway. I mean, yeah. I mean, and listen, we uh, one thing that really upset me about this whole Shazam thing was watching people online celebrate its loss. 
Like, yeah, that's all people like I'm like, what 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 do you have going on in your life that you need to get on the Internet and be happy for something that fails? Thirty million dollars is still a lot of money now. I mean, obviously, nowadays and in, in, in where we are now with box office, it's, it, it is a different number now than it was 20 years ago. Sure. But it is. Like, I'm just, you know, we we will never be that. And anytime I always tell myself this, the moment I become jaded, I've been doing this since 2005 this is the moment I'm going to stop. And I don't see that anytime soon happening. I still feel the same way that I do about movies. But just, you know, there's something I mean, going on. With no people yeah, just no being movie negative. fan should ever celebrate uh, a, a, a box office, uh, a, a yeah. poor box office performance. That, that That's sort of taking a saw to the branch you're sitting on. Like, if you're a yeah. movie fan... Movies doing poorly is not going to work out well for you. Like right. the best thing that could possibly happen or is, is a movie doing well. Whether you like the movie or not, it doesn't matter. Like the more movies do well, the more other options are going to be out there for you to either like or don't like. But if you're if you're cheering the failure of a movie, you're cheering for one of your favorite things to move in the wrong direction. Hey, this is an actually great transition to our next segment. Um, which hey, is a NATO, a NATO sponsored segment, uh, where we have one of our friends from Clar- the National clarify, Association. There you go. I was going to say, clarify yeah, which NATO. <laughs> the National Association of Theater Owners, um, who frequently let us have guests on the show to come by and talk about the state of uh, exhibition. And this time out, it was Jackie Brenneman, who is the executive vice president at NATO. And, and she was joining us because of this group, the Cinema Foundation, put out this inaugural study. And it was about some really exciting things that they found out about um, movie theaters going into 2023 and beyond. And, and some of it was um, some obvious things that you still felt need to be uh, reiterated, which is the fact that from from the previous year into this upcoming year, the um, the number of movies that are going to be available to be screened in multiplexes is 50 percent higher. Um, and yet the ticket prices, when you take them on average, are um, comparable to what they were in like 1971 and all these different reasons why it is a good time to go back to the theaters. And when we Mm -hmm. had spoke uh, for this interview, it was coming off of Creed three doing incredibly well. And it was the high tracking for things like John Wick four. And then um, of course, NATO has this event coming up in April, which is CinemaCon where all the different studios come and promote the number of things that they have coming. We, I think we all believe it's going to be an exciting year uh, in 2023. So again, this is Jackie Brenneman who came by uh, executive vice president at NATO to talk about some of the really interesting things that were discovered in this study uh, conducted by the cinema foundation. And we just kind of figured that you guys would be really interested in finding out what she had to say about these results. Specifically this past month with uh, the addition of like Creed three and uh, Scream 6 coming back, but even films like 65 that are drawing people back into theaters. And of course, the upcoming um, the day we're recording Shazam Fury of the Gods comes out in theaters and John Wick 4 is coming. What I think people probably don't understand, and I found this to be one of the most interesting things that was found by the Cinema Foundation, is the influx of new movies that you guys expect to be coming. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that was a little bit of a problem and how important (laughs) it is to have new features in theaters for people to come see? Yeah, you know, it's it's not rocket science, but you'd be surprised how how hard it was for on the exhibition side for us to convince the studios and the world, really, that the most important thing for movie theaters is a steady flow of movies, diverse movies for diverse audiences, you know, and there was especially coming out of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about certain title, you know, certain demographics not coming back. And our thesis had been. No, they'll come back. You just have to give them movies that they like, right? Right. 
Um, you know, there are audiences, shockingly, that don't love tentpoles, that love other titles, you know, they sure. love some big movies, but in general, they're more interested in other genres. And we just simply didn't have those. You know, there was a supply chain issue, you know, starting in 2020. Mm. Uh, and so this year, you know, we're seeing an incredible influx of titles, diverse titles, the ones that you just mentioned. Those are titles that appeal not necessarily to all audiences, but certainly to many audiences. And that is mm -hmm. exactly what we want. Um, you know, last year, so we compared, we've been looking at uh, wide releases, which we define as 2000 screens or more. Mm -hmm. And the pattern is really clear. So in 2022, we had about 63% of the wide releases as compared to 2019. Okay. And the box office was about 64% of 2019, right? So there's yeah. a real one-to-one -one correlation there. Uh, this year, we have a 50% increase in those wide releases. And that's not only exciting for audiences, but it's a real demonstration by our studio partners that they believe in theatrical. You know, mm. there, was a, there were questions for a while what the role of theatrical was, what the best way to make, market, distribute a movie. And I believe that audiences have answered that question really clearly they prefer movies that were released in theaters first uh that doesn't mean that they'll see all their movies in theaters but those movies are the ones that wherever they select those movies that's the, those are the ones that they want to watch so we're really excited about more titles well i can't tell you how many people that i talk to just in general conversation that ask like where are the movies that aren't the franchises you know and i do want to point out something like a man called Otto, you know, which was almost driven solely on the fact that it was a Tom Hanks vehicle and then positive word of mouth. Like all of those things are still really important for that type of film. Absolutely agree. And I think that's the other little piece of our business we had forgotten about, which is the impact of word of mouth, because hmm. we were pushing those movies for a while that were just, again, the tent poles that people were expected to come to because they were part of a franchise that was really important to those audiences we forgot about how powerful just keeping a movie in theaters and allowing it time to grow can mm -hmm. really, really have. And, you know, we saw that with everything everywhere all at once, of course, sure. it made, it made 60% of its money right. after the first six weeks in the marketplace. Right? right. That's because of word of mouth. People were excited about it. And we saw that with man called auto and, you know, you're going to get that with family titles where kids are booked sometimes for a couple of weeks on the weekends. And then, but they're wanting to see that movie. They just have to find the time. And, you know, there's lots of these different genres and we're seeing more of them. And because they're starting to perform well, uh, it's giving the studios much more confidence to market them. They're finding ways to market really effectively and efficiently for audiences as well. Mm. Uh, you know, Ticket to Paradise did, did really well. Lost City, mm. of course, even earlier. Um, all of these titles are bringing back different audiences and certainly... You know, we have to give always a lot of credit to Top Gun. Top Gun was able to bring <laughs> lots of demographics back. I've been a little wary. Um, yes. So that was helpful. And I'll also give the, you know, the Cinema Foundation a plug here for National Cinema Day. Um, we had, we offered, you know, $3 movies all day, all showtimes, all formats, September 3rd of last year. And we've polled audiences, you know, 8.1 million people came that day. And of those we polled. Unbelievable. Almost 60% of them said they are coming back to the movies more frequently after that day. So, mm -hmm. well, you mentioned that that day where you offered reduced tickets, but there was a point that I want to read specifically here from the findings of the report where it says adjusted for inflation, today's average ticket price 
is lower than 1971's average ticket price. That blew me away because, the, you know, <laughs> the main complaint I hear from people is that, oh, it's so expensive. I'll just wait till it comes, you know, home, essentially. But that's maybe not the case. Yeah, I mean, that's a very popular thing for people to say. But mm-hmm. I think like, I think there's a couple of things. One, step back, people say things that they don't necessarily believe, right? It's just a thing that is common to say. So we start to say it and then sure. we start to think it. But our behavior shows differently. Uh, the average ticket price is also a demonstration of what average consumers are paying. And what that reflects is the fact that most consumers or lots and lots of them are choosing overwhelmingly to go to the premium large format screens. They're choosing to go to peak show times. They're choosing the most expensive option that they can because they think it's valuable. They might think that the price is higher than when they used to go to the movies when they were a child. So they might say movies are expensive, but they are paying and they're paying more than they have to, right? They could choose a matinee. They could choose a discount Tuesday. They could, you know, all of those different things, but that's not what's happening. And I do think, you know, also, of course, the average ticket price of last year reflects the fact that the movies in the marketplace were also dominated by those types of titles. So even though our average ticket price is lower, you know, than 1971's adjusted for inflation, it's actually probably too high. You know, we only, that's only about 70% of the marketplace is surveyed to get that average ticket price. We're missing a lot of the kind of smaller markets. We've got all the big cities. We're missing smaller markets, which certainly are lower priced. And then just the, what was it on the slate last year? We're missing a lot of family titles. We're missing a lot of titles that skew older audiences, skew matinee and all of that. Sure, sure. Um, the survey talked a bit about innovations that are going to be implemented into the um, the multiplexes. Are there specifics uh, that you can speak to uh, or, you know, do we not know necessarily what's on the horizon? I've also, I can say some specifics, but I also just kind of as a generality, what we're seeing is exhibitors really leaning into what consumers are asking for. Consumers want that higher end experience. They want something that feels special. They want something that feels unique. And it's going to depend market to market, audience to audience, right? You you can imagine that a theater that's in a community where there are lots and lots of children would maybe put in a a play area or bowling or things like that, and maybe not focus as much on a bar. And then theaters in metropolitan areas are going to target people that are on foot and they're going to have clubs and they're going to have high end cocktails and really comfortable seats and have a very adult experience. And what we're seeing is exhibitors are really innovating. But generally, you know, you're seeing improvements on the screens, you're seeing improvements in the sound, you're seeing improvements on the seats. But You know, with the advent of loyalty programs and with the ability to directly communicate with social media, I mean, the top 50 exhibitors alone have 40 million followers on social media. That's just, you know, our top 50. Um, So they're learning more and more how to communicate directly with their consumers and get that real feedback and understand how to what concessions do they want? What beer do they want? What seats do they want and program and build around that? And I definitely want you to talk about, of course, we're very uh, focused on the movies, but I do know that a lot of work has been done to get alternate programming into theaters and to excite audiences with the ability to come see uh, something different than a movie that the theater, you know, while it's, of course, driven so much by what's coming from the studios, that there are other things that they can come and enjoy at the movie theaters. Is that also a huge focus? It is absolutely an opportunity. It's an opportunity for our studio partners that are investing heavily in these exciting TV shows. You know, people describe this era as peak TV. Um, We've pulled lots of people, uh, moviegoers, non-moviegoers. This is a study done by the Quorum. And 
they looked at they they took all of these different people and asked them you know do you go to the movies yes or no um would you pay for these various experiences and for especially for television shows for the some of the streaming premieres finales uh, and live concert events the answer for, across all demographics was overwhelmingly yes i don't even go to the movies and i want to go to this right so um a lot every moviegoers of course are excited about this but even non-moviegoers so it's an opportunity to grow audiences we've seen examples of this right uh the bts concert brought in you know tens of millions of dollars for two concerts over you know just it, it, there was so much opportunity there for that to be even even bigger if there were more screens right there they, they sold out instantly um right. so we have capacity it's more about it's it's an it's an emerging business model right so the idea here is to inspire those who can make those those deals to realize that there is an audience waiting for them. It's it's worth investing in, and exhibi- exhibition stands ready to welcome that kind of innovation. Well, you're so right. I mean, the television nowadays is shot so cinematically. I can't imagine being able to see The Last of Us, you know, or something like that on the big screen. And what's been super um, important, I think, is that. Theatrical has invested so heavily in its um, technology to project, essentially, you know, that the movie house that you used to go to is completely different nowadays. You know, it's the 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 technology is available. There's laser elements that are implemented to get you the bed. There's Dolby sound like there's so many different reasons to be able to go and experience the type of content that you want to see on the big screen. Yeah. And I think it's not just about the technology. Right. I think a lot of people love that. And that's a play for many of them. But we all we have good technology at home, right? Everyone loves to talk about all you know that all of that, but something is different about experiencing with a community, right? Sure. So, you know, you know what I would love to see in theaters? I want to go to you know Bachelorette Mondays with with a whole crowd of women and r- drink rosé and like laugh and make fun of it and have the best time. Yep. Because it's not fun watching it at home with my husband, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to be able, and, and, and certainly the projector quality doesn't matter there, but the community does. And so I think it's a, it's a lot of different elements, but we know that you can't human alone and you can't really fan alone, right? It, it's much better to be a fan with other fans, you know, people that understand you, people that will laugh where you will laugh and, and people that will make the jokes that you'll make in the lobby afterward. That makes you feel good connected and so to offer that place where you can really connect with like-minded people in a human in-person way is powerful jackie i could talk to you for days uh, i i know that our uh listeners are going to be so excited for april when CinemaCon rolls around because not only to t- touch on everything that the major studios are bringing but all the different innovations that are coming from the different exhibitors so thank you so much for taking the time to join real blend it was a pleasure talking with you thank you so much Thank you so much to Jackie Brenneman for joining us. This segment of the show was brought to you uh, by NATO. So thank you to our partners at NATO for supporting the show. And thank you to all of our listeners at home for supporting the theatrical experience. You guys know that we're huge proponents of it. Continue to go see movies at the theaters. Uh, when are we having Zach Braff? Zach Braff is going to be a guest on the show coming up. And uh, I loved at the end of that movie. Yeah, next was, week. At the end of the interview, he was like, hey, please go see this movie in theaters. There's the argument that people that they don't make movies like this anymore for the movie theaters. Um, it's a tremendous film with Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman uh, directed by him. And uh, it's called The Good Person. And you're going to want to know more about that coming up. And definitely go see that in movie theaters. Um, the other movie that we're going to send you guys to go see this week is John Wick Chapter 4, um, directed by Chad Stahelski, who you guys heard from earlier. And uh, I'm going to go first because um, 
my expectations for this were uh, were low. Um, I I liked the first John Wick a lot, a lot. I thought it was a great story, to, you know, terrific story. And um, two and three, while I had fun while I was watching them, they don't stick with me. You know, I couldn't you could if you pointed out a certain segment from one of them and said, which one is this one in? I wouldn't be able to tell you. Mm-hmm. I think they're very stylish. I think that they are extremely well choreographed. Um, but I get a little lost in the mythology of everything that's going on with the Continental. I think it's interesting. But again, they all they look so similar that I'm never quite sure. Like, OK, which one was this in sort of thing? And um, and I if anyone listens to this show knows that I like a, a, a hero who is more vulnerable um, mm-hmm. and can bleed. And I feel like Keanu uh, at this point has gone superhuman. Um, and then the length scared me. You know, I was like, you guys, you're telling me this is almost three hours. Um, it's just gonna be three hours of like headshots kind of thing for uh, an eternity. And friends, was I ever wrong? Because <laughs> this is the best one of the series um, without question. And it's almost like you had to get through two and three and all the mythology um, that had been laid out so that the relevance of the things that happened in chapter four uh, hit home. It's it's um, I'm not going to call it like the culmination of his journey, because clearly they can keep making John Wick movies in some way, shape or form if they want to going forward. Uh, It always depends on whether Chad and Keanu want to keep going forward. And Chad sort of talked about that in the interview um, and whether there's an appetite from the audience. But I think after this one, uh, the appetite is still extremely going to be there. I cannot believe how they still figure out original ways to conduct some of these stunts and fight sequences. There are two, I think people are going to be coming out of this movie talking about at length. Um, and the one I want to focus on is the one at the Arc de Triomphe, which is oh. when it happens. I thought for the very first time, I thought a movie had surpassed mission as, uh, as a, a, t- a tentpole benchmark for, for action accomplishment. Like I think McQuarrie and, and Cruz have been on a level that no one else has been at or near. And I think with, John Wick chapter four with a it's, it's a fight sequence that takes place in the middle of the traffic at the Arc de Triomphe um, and it goes on forever. And the longer it kept going on, the more that I was just like, I don't know how they're doing this. I can't <laughs> understand it. And it's brilliant. Um, and to the point where I don't know if Keanu gets the kind of credit that Tom Cruise gets. And I think he deserves it. Like, yeah. he's incredible in these yeah. films. Watch he's the incredible. behind the scenes footage of his training. It's legit. Like, yeah. it's what you're seeing is pretty much what's going on. It's nuts. So I will end this. uh been passed off to the boys by just saying Donnie Yen is an incredible incredible addition to the franchise uh he is the he is the perfect foil for keanu reeves um and i just i i love donnie yen in films and he's perfect in this movie uh i thought this movie was the best of the four you know i think it's four and then one the one one for simplicity and four for what finally i think utilizes everything the franchise does well uh kev where are you on john wick four I genuinely can't believe this movie exists. Like, it's honestly one of the most insane action films I've ever seen. I remember before I went into it, someone described it where they were comparing the the level of action to two of my favorite action movies ever made, which were John Woo's Hard Boiled and The Killer, which I think are, you know, to me, top 10 action movies of all time. That's, you know, I, it's funny. I found John Woo. I found his earlier work after seeing Face Off when I was a kid. And I was like, where, who is this guy? Like what this this action is unbelievable. And I went back and I was like, oh, wow, better tomorrow. Unbelievable. Um, this film, like 
Okay, so weirdly enough, the action is incredible, but I think the quiet moments in this movie are the are are, are the best. Um, there's a scene with Donnie Yen and Keanu Reeves, which is in the trailer. It opens up, I think, the first or second trailer. That's essentially an homage to Heat, um, because you know they're going to battle it out. They're having a calm conversation in a church um, about uh, it was a church, right? Yeah, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and and they're talking about essentially the idea that we're going to be one of us is going to die, essentially. Um, but in this like beautifully poetic way, De Niro, Pacino style heat at the diner, you know, brother, you're going down. It's like really kind of a very interesting concept but then all like there are so many scenes like that in the film i mean the action is unbelievable there's a oneer that takes place overhead which chad talked about in our interview there's two stitches in there that oh my is, god i forgot the, about that yeah they, they, he's wow. using this like gun it's wow. like a dragon i can't remember the name of it dragon something but it, the, the, it's a shotgun that essentially lights the person on fire <laughs> i think i have i have that right but it is Truly unbelievable. But the beauty of what Chad said in the interview, which is what comes across in the movie, is that every shot choice and every single action scene is done narratively. Um, there's a reason why he goes into a one overhead over Keanu's action scenes, not to look cool. He explains it beautifully in the interview about kind of like entering this 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 moment with Keanu Reeves's character in John Wick. And. What's interesting to me is like, you know, there's a staircase scene that's going to blow your mind. Um, There are just multiple sequences where this film really kind of continues to like top itself over and over and over again. But then when you jump to these quiet moments, that's where the drama really hits. Like you genuinely care for this character. You want Mm -hmm. him to get out. Um, And the Donnie Yen performance I don't understand how that how that how those scenes were even done. He was unbelievable um, in this film. Like it is truly a remarkable performance. And uh, shout He's out a to special effect. He personally is a special. Yes. Effect. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, also, shout out to Lance Reddick. I, I know that um, he just passed. Uh, unfortunately, this past Friday. Uh, and, you know, he's been a very big part of these films. Um, an amazing actor. Uh, Oz Bosch with the wire. I mean, wire. he really is, is brilliant. Um, but you know, he was a big part of these movies The the, when John wick would check in at the continental that I, I looked forward to those moments between him mm-hmm. and Lance, like those, just that, that banter back and forth. I don't remember. I think it was in the first or second one, a second one actually where, uh, where John wick brings in his new dog, and he leaves the dog uh, at the front desk and Lance is just looking at the dog. Well, that, that one moment I felt like said so much about his character because John Wick was trying to leave his new dog at the Continental. And yeah. I believe Lance Reddick's character says, you know, they, the Continental doesn't house dogs. And there's but a bee. I'll do and he it. says, but I'll take it. And yeah. I felt like, and granted, we're all dog lovers. So I think we have an affinity for anyone else who's a dog lover. But that moment that like just that one line made you think like, OK, I get oh. this guy works with killers. But like he must be cool because he's willing to take this dog home <laughs> right. and, and, and watch the dog while John Wick's just brutally killing people. And that's the thing is like every single scene like that speaks to the world building. Like if you watch the first one, like everything is set up beautifully. The whole Willem Dafoe character is really fascinating. Just the I way they set he's in the first one. He's great in the first totally one. Totally forgot great. that he was in until I rewatched it. I was like, what great. the hell? Willem Dafoe is in this. Um, but yeah, uh, so this one in particular, uh, I, you know, it, again, it's dramatically, but also action wise, it is unbelievable. Um, this is one of my favorite action movies I've ever seen. And I'm talking i grew up on action movies like i you know bad boys 2 face off as i mentioned the killer hard-boiled um the raid this is definitely right up there i mean i am and also last thing i'll say about this is the cinematography every single shot Mm, mm. is gorgeous there's a scene where ian mcshane is walking 
down the yes. side hall of, of the Louvre. Chad spoke with us about that. And it's this beautiful, master, brilliant shot as the camera's tracking along as we hear uh, Ian McShane's loud shoes on the floor. But the way they capture it, and I was rewatching the second one the other night, they use a lot of paintings um, in these films. Even with uh, the, the gentleman who plays the, the villain in the, in the second one, I'm blanking on his name. But there's a scene where him and John Wick meet up and in front of this like incredible painting. And all these paintings are basically foreshadowing. <laughs> it seems like they're foreshadowing what's going to happen in these movies. Movie. So mm-hmm. I loved it. It's one of the best action films I've ever seen, and it is highly, highly worth seeing in a theater. Don't let the length bother you. They earn every frame oh, yeah, of this movie. Yeah. And um, Gabe, just remind me, I'm, I'm assuming we did or we did cut out the spoiler part of our interview with Chad. We always do. Yep. OK, so once you all see the film, there's there, there is an there is there is an answer that Chad gave us about what you're probably questioning. And we'll dive into that more. Just keep keep an eye on our feeds. Jacob, what else would you like to add? Yeah, I mean, it, it is far and away my favorite of the four. And I think because, as you guys said, I think it perfectly nails sort of everything that makes this series work. I, I enjoyed, I don't want to say the simplicity of it because I feel like that undersells. But I, I, I think the reason, and here's the deal, I love all four films in this series. But the reason three is my least favorite is that it felt like to me it got lost in the weeds of uh, all the mythology surrounding this world and the rules and the continental and the guy who's running the high table and everything. Mm-hmm. And it felt like four remembered John Wick's enough. Like John Wick being on a mission is all we need. That's that's how we started and that's good enough. Now granted, it took all the lessons it learned from a technical standpoint and from an action standpoint. So you get the best of the action sequences that we've learned from the last three films, but it returns to that smallness, that intimacy, that that simplicity of John Wick getting from A to B. There, there's a sequence that I found myself feeling guilty for how hard I was laughing, but there's a, a sequence in the film that just requires him to get up a flight of stairs. <laughs> and it's one of the most, like, I just kind of got chills thinking about it because it's one of the most, like, physically painful sequences to watch yeah. and you feel guilty kind of while you're while you're laughing about it but uh that those sort of moments are just reminders of like that's that's it that's all you'd like for a movie like this all you need is a character you care about an actor who can pull it off and give me a, a unique circumstance to throw them into and you've got a great movie and you're absolutely right it's the fastest the three hours has flown by in in probably a since very, infinity very, war yeah oh, oh that's a great that's a great comparison and it goes back to that great roger ebert quote no good movie is long enough no bad movie short enough like the, if the movie works yeah. doesn't matter if it's three hours long and it's i'm insane. sure i'm sure there are studio heads that would say differently but it's it's just an absolutely i mean these guys nailed it it is is beautifully filmed uh it, it is a ballet of badass as i've been telling people and it, and and it's just uh a perfect example of what happens when the right actor finds the right character, finds the right director, and you you know it all it all boiled it all, it all came from you you pissed me off because you hurt my dog, and it has turned into what I would go <laughs> as far as saying is one of the greatest action series of all time. And yep. this one is the movie they were they were they were I think they were born to make in terms of like when this idea came about. Like this is this is the one. Like this is genuine. And I, I don't. I no pun intended because Chad Stahelski was his uh, was his stunt coordinator in the Matrix. But I'm telling you, this is the way action needs to be done. Mm-hmm. That's why films like Bullet Train. These are these guys who come from the the these these stunt coordinators like David Leach, who's been on our show before. David and Chad are, are your great great friends. Obviously, they've worked together before with the Matrix films. But 
I'm telling you, this is upping the game and how action is done. Like you mentioned, Tom Cruise and Macquarie is a great example. That's a great duo of a team that yeah. does things well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're 100 percent right, though. Keanu Reeves, for some reason, I think because the stunts that that Tom Cruise does are so insane that the on the ground tactical choreographed gun foo or whatever he's doing with the car foo, whatever he's doing, it doesn't seem as a quote unquote as impressive. But mm-hmm. when I'm telling you this film, I, I really believe that Keanu Reeves is on that level. I, I'm with you hundred percent. I don't, yeah. I think he deserves more recognition in terms of his stunt work because he's doing this. Watch the B roll. It's insane mm-hmm. how they do this movie. All right, let's keep the action talk going on the other side with our blend game. We'll take a quick break. And we are back. Okay, so this week's blend game is based off of John Wick and a bunch of other um, action films that we love. And it is hashtag action set piece. All three of us have discussed the fact that this is incredibly difficult. Uh, We all love action films and there are so many memorable ones that we could choose from. I feel like if you ask us this question a month from now, our answers will be different. But for today, Kevin McCarthy, what is your favorite action set piece? Got to go first. All right. So I'm going to cheat. I'm choosing one, but the one I'm choosing is an entire film <laughs> because the entire <laughs> the entire film takes place in this place. And it's the raid redemption. Um, like, okay. that's I, the only answer where that that accounts, I think it does, because I mean, you're talking about a film that takes place in this building. Right. It's, yeah. You know, and, and I'll be honest with you. I so I'm a big Linkin Park fan. Mike Shinoda did uh, a lot of the music for the film. And so it was like these two combinations of some of my favorite music ever like from a, from an artist that i love combined with some of the most brutal relentless insane action that i've ever seen um and I'll, i i will never forget it because when you when you're in the middle of an action scene there's it's hard to it's hard to surprise people nowadays because they've seen so much that's why john Wick chapter four was so cool because they, they just utilized action in a way that was unique I mean, there's a lot of things that I wanted to dive into, like old boy tracking shot and things like that. But then I kept thinking, like, Children of Men, is that an action scene um, when, when we're the one with the motorcycle? I mean, I don't know if I'd call that action. Um, but on the other side of this, the raid, the raid just I had never seen anything like it before. And it was so unique and so interesting and felt so immersive and brutal to a point where I felt every single punch and kill. And like there are scenes in that film that I still cannot believe that they pulled off. And if you haven't seen this movie, it came out in 2011 and and it is Gareth Evans directed it. And it's just it's it's a film that I've never seen do action again like that. And again, there's been great action done since then, of course, as you mentioned, Mission and the John Wick franchise. But this was just a a combination of things that I love. Mike Shinoda, Linkin Park and action and just relentless action. And to a point where like the action almost becomes poetic. It's like Mm. poetry. Like it's literally like poetry, like like instead of dialogue, we're being told a story through punches and and brutal uh, killings. Um, And I I just found it so fascinating because it felt like it was never going to end in the best way possible. Uh, I will never forget seeing it in AMC Georgetown. Um, I I remember where I was when I saw it. Uh, It was just incredible um and if you haven't seen it i wanted to use that as my as my choice because it's it, it's so underrated i know a lot of people out there listening to our show probably have seen the raid but if you haven't highly 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 recommend it um you will not be sorry uh it is 
again, you know, I could easily have gone with like John Woo stuff. But to me, it was the collective nature of the way this film was designed and the sound design and the editing and, and, and just the way they use floors and the way they use the building, the, the, the building itself becomes a character like and and it's just it, I don't know. Relentless and brutal and awesome are the three words that I think about. Uh, it's one of my favorite action movies I've ever seen. Um, and it takes place like, you know, if we're talking about an action set piece, that's the whole movie, man. I mean, the whole movie is, is in that is essentially that's in fair. that building. So yep. um, while it may Hard be cheating, um, I can't not choose that. Like that is hands down my favorite action overarching idea that I've seen in a film. All right, Jake, where are you going? I, I'm also going to cheat a little bit, not to the degree that Kevin's cheating, but I'm going to choose <laughs> basically a, about a 20 minute sequence of different scenes that are strung together by one thing happening. And the one Ooh, thing that is that happening, too. I might do the, that. Also. Well, because I, I saw some people uh, suggesting this is a great pick. This is not my pick, but I saw some people suggesting like the start of Arnold revealing the shotgun in the in the box of roses all mm-hmm. the way to the chase scene in the in the mm-hmm. L.A. River. Like to me, that is I would say that that's one big giant action sequence. It is. It's the beginning into the chase all the way into the chase. That's one okay. big thing. So I'm going to do that's something similar. Yeah. And I mine uh, begins with a doorknob attempting to be opening opened in a kitchen leading to what is my single favorite shot uh, of all time. And all of it is being strung together by a pack of velociraptors chasing a group of people. Oh, so nice. it is it is but I'm choosing the Velociraptor chase in the final act of Jurassic Park, uh, beginning okay. with uh, the kitchen scene, which I think is one of the most like beautifully tight, tense, intricate, perfect uh, uh, sequences of of action but like a fucking piano wire it is stringed so tight that you as an audience member are almost holding your breath afraid to mutter a word out of fear that like they're going to hear you small little details one of the smallest little details that i've always loved in jurassic park is the shot of the velociraptor toe and the his little toe taps mm-hmm. three times on that mm-hmm. love that too the 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 um the trick of that sequence that we using the reflection Mm-hmm. Where you think that she, you think that the Velociraptor is going straight toward her as she's trying to pull the the door down, and it turns out it was a reflection of like that's such a great Spielberg. Spielberg loves doing stuff like that, leading all the way into uh, you know that the beautiful shot that was used in in Babylon of the the DNA codes being reflected on the Velociraptors as they're like mm-hmm. trying to watch them as they're going through the ceiling, and then of course the big final payoff being that the the dinosaur, the the, the Transformers Rex, she finds her way into the main uh, uh atrium of jurassic park and you know the and it's tearing the velociraptors all over the place and it roars as the banner falls in front of it like ah, 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 ah. it's just it's the absolute it's it's the best sequence it's absolutely perfect strung together by my favorite dinosaurs which is the velociraptor like i just it's terrifying it's fantastic it's thrilling and it's it just pays off in just a giant like just clap your hands and let it go sort of moment so that's my that's my favorite action scene it's a great one okay that's a great one. Um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to the Burj Khalif scene. Yeah. Which I don't think is an action scene, though. It is. I, I think it's a stunt. Well, it's it's more I think it's more than any of the other two picks. That's more of an action set piece like that is a that is like a the set the setting. Yeah, it's quite literally like the bird. You literally mentioned the set with the, okay. the Burj Khalif scene is a little bit of tense action. Okay, well, I, I will but, just 
mention that one because I I still to this day cannot believe that, yeah. that he did that he did what he did. And if like, Brad Bird, if you listen to our show, please release the IMAX version of that on on Blu-ray because we're missing so much of that image. Put it back in theaters. Put it, I just want to see it back in theaters. You can't even yeah. see the top. You can't even see the top of the building. It's so tall. You can't. They, it's cropped. That was a 65 millimeter IMAX sequence. It was unbelievable. I saw it on an eight story screen. Insane. So my uh, choice is also going to mirror Jake's uh, in the sense that I'm going with a Spielberg. And I'm going with one that is uh, probably not as beloved. Uh, as oh, everyone, wait. Can as I guess? Else thinks it's going to be. Sure. Go ahead. Is it the Tom Cruise running scene in War of the Worlds? No, that is a good one, though. Is, it the, is it the uh, the truck chase scene from Raiders? No, it's the mine car scene from Temple of Doom. Oh, okay. oh All right. good one. Because good one. I didn't see Raiders in a theater. I saw Raiders on VCR. Um, so Temple <laughs> of Doom was the first Indiana Jones movie that I saw in a theater. And I couldn't believe that you could do that stuff in a movie. Yeah. Um, and if you go back and look at it now, you can clearly see that it's, you know, projectors and and but Still I literally it's believed magic. It's I magic. literally believe they were hurtling along on on rails, you know, through a, a cavern somewhere. And that short round was being held between the the cars and that he was going to get cut in half by the by the um stalactites or stalagmites or whatever they were that were going through and um the, the i love action set pieces that continuously escalate um and so you know them uh, chopping down the water towers to flood the tunnels and then indy has to slow the car down by using his feet and mm-hmm. when he jumps off and he's going water, 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 and then all the water's coming, crashing through them, which then pushes them outside to the side of the mountain as water is bursting out through, which then leads them to the rope bridge, which has to be one of the most, you know, significant Indiana Jones uh, set pieces in and of itself. The rope bridge. Yeah. Uh, and when he chops it in half uh, and sends Kalima. I feel like that is probably that image of Indy on the rope bridge is. Short of if you were to just Google Indiana Jones, yeah, in terms of frames from the series, short of him in front of the fertility idol, sort of you know where he's sort of contemplating yeah, what to do, huge one. him on the rope bridge is probably the next most common image of of, of Indiana Jones as, as a whole over over that, the course of four films, or the melting yeah. face. <laughs> that's the image that I always feel like I think about when I think that's of Indiana Jones. Jones. So that's what I'm going to go with. I, I'm much like Jake stitching together a number of sequences that I think all fit into the. But if you just say the mine car sequence from Temple of Doom, yeah. I think all things those things sort sure. of fit. And in the, the same way that I would say the like the Velociraptor chase in Jurassic Park, like that's yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Now people would know what that is. Yeah. All right, audience picks is uh, Zoeb Ali. Says the bike sequence in Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, I don't know what that means. Okay. That that's a know. movie that I feel like you could do the like entire the movie. entire movie is one big. <laughs> well, what is the, the bike sequence? Scene. What's the bike sequence? You talking about? I don't like. We talking about when there's a. I think there's a specific sequence where Nicholas in the, Holt in the middle of the chase. There's a number of bikers that are like yeah. Oh, the, the motorcycle desert. guys that are jumping over them, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I would argue that shot with Tom Hardy when he's on that thing, like going left to right and like the big explosion that happens behind him. That I means that whole good. movie. I'll never forget seeing that for the first time because George Miller was just at the theater testing the sound before I got there. I'll never forget that because that remember seeing that movie for the first time. You never saw anything like that. It was unreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? I'm sorry. It was all right. What are you uh, talking about? Who are you? Ariel Pace says, and this one I do not know. Uh, Ariel Pace said, Marissa and Hannah's chase scene in the Grimm Brothers Amusement Park in Hannah. 
Joyride's oh, great. movie Hannah. I haven't great seen movie. I haven't seen that movie since the junket, so I need to I need to rewatch that. That's a really good action that. movie. Yeah. J- Josh Kemig says uh, one that I know Kevin is going to love: the warehouse fight scene in BVS. Damn right. Matt Karen says the hallway fight from Inception. Mm. And Abby says Rick Dalton getting out the flamethrower. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Those are good ones. <laughs> That's a good one. Those are all very, very good. All right. Uh, for next week, in relation to D&D coming to theaters, and we're going to have our review for that one, uh, we're playing hashtag Hugh Grant blend. Spoiler. Oh, cool. Spoiler, that movie's amazing, by the way. just It's a just ton wanna, of fun. It's so it awesome. Yeah. Two amazing yeah. movies in a row, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. it's so it's good. It's been a good month. Yeah. It has been a good month. Yep. It's really, right. really good. So hashtag Hugh Grant Blend. Uh, let us know your pick on social media or email realblend at someoneblend.com. All right, before we get out of here, we have a few minutes left, and Jake Hamilton has had all week to sit on what his Oscar punishment is going to be because lo and behold, Jake went and won the Oscar bet one more time and has something for uh, Kevin and I to endure. So, Mr. Hamilton, what is your weapon of choice this year? Did you guys see the, the tweet that someone sent us in the Real Blend account that compared my dominance of uh, the, the Oscar game to James Cameron's dominance of the box office? I liked no, that I comparison. Didn't, I, I didn't I'll see that. I'll send it to no, you. I'll send it to you. No, sorry. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll retweet it. Don't worry. Don't worry. My punishment for you guys is, hey, I would still take that as a huge compliment. My punishment for you guys is going to cost you money. Uh, I don't know how much money it's going to cost you, but it's going to cost you money. And it is, um, I want uh, a bros weekend or overnight for all four of us. And the reason I say that is we so often, in the rare chance that we're all together, it's mm-hmm. usually the result of all of us being at a junket or, you know, and then and then we cherish those brief moments where like we can sit down at a, at a bar and grab a beer or grab a bite before rushing off to the airport, before getting on a flight the next day because we're the junkets over. So what I'm going to uh, stipulate is between now and December 31st, if okay. all four of us are at a junket for a, for, because we're getting a big interview for real blend, we pay to extend an extra day and have a day just for ourselves or by the fall, if I'm it doesn't down. look like that's going to happen, I'm going to demand uh, the four of us um, get together in Chicago uh, because Chicago is a great city in the fall. Um, so by the fall, we'll have a better idea of whether or not this is going to happen. And if it doesn't look like timing is going to work out, uh, then I'm going to demand that we just straight up have a bro weekend in the fall. That's not a punishment at all. That's a great. Well, it's going to be a punishment yeah. for your pocketbook. Yeah, but no, we're, we're worth it. What he's not telling you is that when we get to his apartment, we sit down human centipede marathon. Uh huh. And he's oh, got I'm not, not going to be with you guys. <laughs> You're going to sit down. And I'm going to press. So that's that's what we're going to do. All right, I like it. I, I love like it. it. That's there a great, go. great. It's, I don't even know, it's not even a punishment. No, it's not. No, well, I, guess when, when, I would say let's, let's see how much the flights cost you. We got to pay Jake. We got to pay Jake's way whenever we go out. Pick a good place in Chicago for us to go to. There's that a Chipotle be. like three blocks away. Hey, I love, I'm down. Done deal. All right. Our next premium episode is going to be a mailbag. Well, also, someone owes me a steak. I can't remember. We need to keep track of these. I'm pretty, okay, so I'm pretty sure I'm... <laughs> I'll well, buy you a steak at that event that we do. Oh, oh there you go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So I'll, I'll, I'll pay for... What, I think what, what, but isn't Sean a part of that as well? I think I owe you both steaks. Wait, what, what, why would I owe you Jake's steaks? Why would I... We gotta go back and look. We, gotta, we, 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 need some, we need to hire someone as like a keeper of the bets. Technically, it should be me, but I leave it to you guys because it's your your money. So, 
Uh, yeah, it's, no, just, someone it's hard to keep track of all the bets I've won. If someone hey. knows, please let us know. Hey guys, guess what? What? Uh, today is March twenty first. That means we are getting spring. Uh, spring is uh, here. No, how, how many? So July twenty first is Oppenheimer. How many oh, months God. away is that? Is that? Hey, um, hey, hey Kevin, are we? Are we ready? No. We're not. I'm pretty prepared. I, read I don't book. even think. I don't, I don't even think Florence Pugh is ready. I <laughs> talked to her it, about it yesterday. Does it? Does, is it terrible <laughs> that like whenever the news dropped that like Jordan Peele's movie's coming out Christmas 2024? I seriously <laughs> just went, oh my god, I'm gonna have to hear we're not ready for like, the right. next the next like 22 <laughs> months. Wait, Gabe, you finished Oppenheimer? No, I just wanted to say that to say oh. that I was ready. I was telling. <laughs> oh my gosh, that book is incredible. Oh. Are we gonna get another trailer for Oppenheimer, or you think oh, we're yeah. done? We, we're we don't trailer. need one. No. Well, you will, but it'll be on an episode of The Equalizer on Thursday night. <laughs> See, that's an inside joke about them making fun of me for Nolan not putting his trailers online. I don't know, man. I'll tell you this. The other day, I went and saw Creed 3 in IMAX because I wanted to see because it's the first sports movie ever shot in IMAX. I know we got to go. But the trailer came on for Oppenheimer, and I, I sat there and I said to myself, I'm so glad this is not online. Because it was like exciting to actually see it again in a theater. Oh, in a the theater, yeah, that makes. But there, 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 there's, a, there's a method. That. There's a method to Nolan's madness. Okay. I just, uh, I'm just very, I'm very excited. Uh, and uh, Florence Pugh is playing Gene Tatlock, which I'm. It's gonna be a very interesting film. Very looking forward to it. Breaking news, right there. No, that's uh, not breaking news. All right, so follow us online uh, at Jake's Takes or Jake's Stakes. You gotta get that. You gotta get that name right now. I don't know. Uh, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach, and the show is at Real Blend. I mean, Jake, uh, you literally could do Jake Steaks. Jake Steaks. And then, and then your reviews are, are, st- are star. Are the, the, it's a casino and steakhouse. No, no, I can no, do no, the like, bit, but we're, we're going to New York for Renfield this weekend, so I can yeah. do sort of like a, like a vampire Jake Steaks. Yeah, but you know, you could yeah. like totally change it to Jake Steaks, and then every time you give a review, instead of zero to five, you do it through steak temperatures. Steak. So yeah. you do like rare, medium rare, medium, mm-hmm. medium well, well done. Okay, well don't done. put this in the universe because I'm <laughs> so horrified that my bosses are going to hear this and go, "It's brilliant." Make the graphics now, because they'll sell a sponsor. They're going to sell some type of steakhouse sponsor. And then oh, you're gonna... and is it safe to say that next week, once at a certain embargo lifts, that we're going to have a very special little little Hubie oh, yes. gift for you? We have a we have a oh, we have a, yeah. we, have a, we have a we have a Hubie gift for all y'all. It's going to be as much as I as much as I hate myself, I participate. You did. <laughs> all three of us did. You did. All right, fair enough. Well, until then, Oppenheimer. God. Barbie.